Welcome back to Inside the Capitol. I'm your host, Colin Walkie. And I'm Josh West. It is uh, 17 November 2021. Absolutely. Third day of special session. We have been called into special session in order to do uh, redistricting maps, uh, both for the state level and the congressional level. And as you all probably recall, we did this once for the House. Uh, but unfortunately, the uh, federal census information was delayed. And so our data was a little off. We had to go back and redraw those maps. But uh, I think everybody was fairly pleased with the House districts. And we'll get that into, into that in a minute. Uh, but the other topic that we certainly want to talk about today is Julius Jones. Uh, he is scheduled for execution, I believe, tomorrow. We're still waiting on Governor Stitt whether he's going to grant clemency. Um, and so those will be the topics. And we're, we're, we're lucky today because we're joined by Merlin Bell from House District 45. 45 in Norman. And then I have uh, a, a great new member. He came in in 2020, Anthony Moore. He replaced the great Harold Wright. That's right. Uh, what, what's your district? District Anthony? 57, Western Oklahoma. So he's a Western five counties. And he's only been here for – this is your first term, right? Just finished yeah. for, for, finished year one. Year one, and, and he's already got an, a really fun nickname called Golden Boy, and I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> oh. But. Well, I call him other, other things. <laughs> no, so the, the reason that we had to do this special session family is because show. that's one of our constitutional duties. Every 10 years, we've got to redo the lines uh, off the census numbers. We were late getting the census number as uh, the numbers, as uh, Representative Walkie mentioned, because of, I don't know, COVID, all kinds of stuff happened. We didn't get the numbers. We did have, uh, preliminary maps drawn during session. And then when those numbers came out, it was like, Oh, <laughs> so, go so back. we've been working on this for, you know, well over a year now. We, we ran the legislation the first time for this uh, in 19, probably, to allow this process to begin. And so we, uh, Chairman Ryan Martinez, he's the, um, the chair of the redistricting committee. And then we have co-chairs. There's, I believe there's a R, there's a D. And then um, who's the R? Was it Emily? I mean, the D. Uh, yeah, I think it was it Emily on that one. I think I it was Emily. So. Yeah. So and, so, so, and then they had regional um, chairs as well. So, um it's been a long process, and I think, and, and as House members here, we all participated in it. And there was, I think, was mentioned today over 30 meetings across the state. And uh, my meeting was down in Tahlequah at Northeast State University. And when we went, we had a, in the auditorium, there was a crowd there. So it was, I was glad to see people, you know, coming from Eastern and Northeast Oklahoma to participate. So uh, let's get started with Merlin. What, what do you think about both uh, the redistricting process for the state level as well as the congressional district? And, and you and feel free because I believe you all have not been on the show. So if you want to talk about your, tell yeah, about absolutely. yourself, your yeah. families, your district, where it's at, this is your time to. Oh sure. Let the people know. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, this is really fun. It's excited to see you all pumped up. You know, I'm not talking about these issues with folks. So uh, thanks for that. Thanks for having me. Um, I am from Norman. I'm originally from Norman. I grew up in Norman. I'm Norman through and through. So, uh, oh, come on. <laughs> we don't have to start like that, you know. <laughs> uh, no, so yeah, I, you know, I went to OU and I worked there for 12 years before joining the legislature. So, um you know, it, it's, uh, and my degree actually is in geography. So I studied maps as an undergrad. So redistricting and coming into the redistricting, redistricting process was something that was really exciting for me. Um, you know, it, it has been a long process <laughs> and, um, you know, a very laborious process, especially for our staff here in the house. 
So, um, yeah, it's just been really interesting and fascinating to participate in. It is something that only happens once a decade. So, you know, the maybe the golden boy will still be here the next time we do this. But I so, think the so rest of us So you came will be in gone. in 2018, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Big class, probably the biggest class of members yeah. that we've ever had. I think yeah. there was like 38. No, no, no. There was 47 total. Yeah new members out of 101 yeah. that year. So we, Colin and I came in a big class, we, which we thought it was in 16, but about 36, 37, but you all. Between the people that just left and the yeah. people who lost, I mean, when Merlin's class came in, I think that less than half of the house had more than four years of experience. Yeah. 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 Well, because 04 is the first year that term limits kicked in. kicked in. And so that class from 04 obviously turned out in 16. So you had a big group come in and, and there were some, like you said, you lose a few every year, just decide, hey, I've, I've, I've done what I think I can do and I'm, I'm not going to run, but um, big classes. Uh, the last class that came in was pretty small. Anthony's class was small, but Anthony, tell us a little about yourself, your district, your family, whatever you want to talk about. Sure. So my name is Anthony Moore, and I'm from House District 57. Like I said, that's central western Oklahoma, uh, covering five counties. I have all of Custer County, parts of Caddo, uh, Blaine, Canadian, and Beckham counties right now. Obviously, that's set to change now, and um, um, I'm married, have three small kids, 10, eight, and four and growing every day. And, um, obviously miss them while I'm here, but they keep us busy when we're not. So. It's crazy to see how much they change while you're here, isn't it? Even they especially really your do. youngest ones. They really do. Uh, looking at pictures of your youngest ones when you got elected versus now, it's just night and day different. And obviously you miss some of that, but I'm, I'm from Clinton, born and raised. Uh, I went to, uh, undergrad in Oklahoma Christian in Edmond and lived in Edmond and went to law school actually with representative Walkie at OCU. Uh, downtown before it was in the brand new pretty building uh, we, we went to the old campus uh, I always joke that we paid for the new campus <laughs> but still paying uh, for the new campus right uh, I, I you know I'm an attorney by trade uh, I was in the DA's office uh, I also have a lot of oil and gas experience and then took that into um, private practice and do oil and gas litigation work and real property issues and general litigation uh, across the state but you know heavily focused in western Oklahoma especially um, so I, I'm the rule guy in the room here with uh, with Josh. So uh, let's talk about. Let's do it. Okay. So uh, as far as I, I think all of us are going to say, yeah, we're fairly happy with our house districts, unless we want to comment on that. But more than happy to open that up. Uh, at the congressional level, though, um, I think that the biggest fight that we've seen uh, thus far uh, has to do with CD five. Um, that's Congressional District 5, which had historically been held by a Republican. Uh, uh, Congresswoman Kendra Horn won in 2018, and then uh, Representative Bias beat her in 2020. Um, and so uh, as a Democrat looking at the new map, it's pretty clear to me what the, what the goal was, was to not make that a competitive seat anymore. And so part of Southside Oklahoma City got carved out and was added to Western Oklahoma. Uh, and so basically, if you live in Boys City, you have the same representative as somebody in South Oklahoma City, and uh, that seems wildly divergent as far as interests are concerned. Uh, but with that being said, th those are my two cents. So, Merlin? Yeah, I mean, you know, I did take the point today during our discussion on the House floor that it, this is bound to happen, you know, that, that every district is going to have urban, suburban, and rural. Um, but but I, I did share the concerns that were brought up, too, about the number of people who are changing representation because of the new maps that have been drawn um, and about the specific... Um, uh, what do they call it? A, a group of interest or entities? 
yeah, you know, a, 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 a group of, of interest or a community of interest. Yes, thank you, a community of interest in the south side of Oklahoma City. Uh, you know, I think that there are some very interesting, very distinct issues to them um, that make it concerning and uh, and are valid for them to raise concerning their um, their representation moving forward. And honestly, the place for us to have that discussion was today. So, you know, um, it may not have played out the way that um, a, a number of us wanted it to, but I think it was a good, robust discussion, and I was glad to be there to hear it and take part in it. Well, I think, so Ch Chairman Martinez, Ryan Martinez was the, the chair of this, this uh, committee, uh, busy, busy, busy over the last, especially over the last year with the meetings everywhere, and, you know, from just being here since we've been here, I don't know. And talking to people that were here, other members, former members that were here back in 2010, when they went to this, they're like, if people wanted transparency, they have ample opportunity to participate, to attend meetings, to submit public comments. And so I don't know how much more transparent we could have been. I mean, my district changed like most rural districts I had to. And I tell people all the time, because I've gotten phone calls and emails from people upset and, you know, they're seeing the headlines on the news. I'm like, well, how do you, you know, the term gerrymander, it does not exist where I live. I can't grow to the east. I've got, my, my district joins Arkansas and Missouri. So, and you don't even have to worry about gerrymandering because everybody up there is a Republican. Uh, well, no, it's, <laughs> uh, the, the change in rural Columbus is obviously substantial, but I've got Bayshore, Representative Bayshore to the north. I've got Representative Hardin to the south. And then to my west, I've got Representative Cornwell. And so it was just, you know, the, the program that we used, there was, it showed nothing other than bodies. You click on a space of the map, it shows how many people live there. And so I don't know what sex they are, what race they are. It, their age, anything about them, it was numbers. And so I'm just trying to get warm bodies is like most people in, in rural Oklahoma was. And I, those numbers weren't um, exact. I mean, we had so many people move in in the last two years in my area. Um, and a lot of them came from states that had high restrictions and high taxes. And, and they, look, they were looking for a state with less restrictions. But my problem was early on was getting people to fill out the census. They looked at us government, you know, overreach or intrusion and i was just like there's the, the questions are pretty simple they're not asking you personal questions i want to know how many people live in your house you know these are there's federal dollars attached to this but what do you think anthony well I, I have a very unique perspective because a lot of rural legislators and a lot of my colleagues that are from uh, the urban areas assume uh, that rural western oklahoma is predominantly caucasian and i'm from a minority majority community i'm from a community that for the first time since statehood in september of 2019 was a democrat majority uh, just less than two years ago right at two years ago now um, for the first time in state history uh, republican actually had the majority in clinton so i have a very interesting perspective on it and um, my district personally changed quite a bit just from what we passed before we left uh, to what we passed yeah. today you know i was I had Custer County, which is about 27,000 of my 39,000 people. Um, but then I was coming all the way into the north half of El Reno uh, when we left. And now I go the opposite direction. Custer County is now the east boundary. Um, and uh, it goes to this. I go to the state line at the Texas Panhandle, having Roger Mills County in the west half of Beckham. So it's a g gigantic swing. I, you know, 12,000 people on the east side versus 12,000 on the west. Uh, there are pros and cons to that, but kind of to the point about the congressional redistricting, one of the things that's very hard is for my personal district, and that's what I know best, so I relate it to that. Um, HD 57 cuts Custer County, which is between Weatherford and Hydro, a town split by three miles. 
And now all of a sudden Hydro, which shops in Weatherford, goes to eat in Weatherford, has everything in common with Weatherford, is no longer in my district. You know, and that's very hard. And, and the lines have to be drawn somewhere. There were really good points made today about, you know, Oklahoma, you know, Leader Virgin made a comment about Oklahoma City trying to be all in one district. Well, Oklahoma City's not. Oklahoma County was. And we've got multiple counties that Oklahoma City covers. And so the lines have to be drawn somewhere. Uh, and for me, being in CD3, it's very hard because uh, Congressman Lucas has like 48% of the state by area before the redraw. I think it's the largest district in the country. Second. Not, second yeah, next second, to the one state that has one district. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's he's got this giant district now. And I promise you, he doesn't really want to take big chunks of Oklahoma City. He doesn't. Uh, that, that's not his ideal, but he knows that he has to pick up people. And that's the unfortunate reality is with rural Oklahoma, uh, you know, losing people so quickly, I think 70,000 people, uh, Lieutenant Governor Pinnell said, moved out of rural Oklahoma in the last, you know, several years. Um, he's got to pick up bodies. And again, that, that software doesn't say what those bodies are. Uh, and for me personally, again, being from a minority majority town, I, I'm, I enjoy the fact that there are, uh, we do have more minority-centric populations that are going to be in that CD3 because I, I do understand the, the issues between urban versus rural, but I also think those minorities that are represented in the panhandle and, and places like Clinton um, are, are very important. Uh, Congressman Luca does a good job to represent them, and I, and I think he will continue. And I hope that those citizens in Oklahoma City see that they do have a really strong voice that will represent them to the best of his ability. And, and this is a this is a – it's not a tough topic to talk about. Obviously, we have our disagreements, and it's good. We can disagree. I mean, I kept hearing the term um, communities of interest. And without saying it on the, you know, without this coming out and saying it, I think that's another way to say by race at times. That's part of it. That's part of the communities. And so and so my when, when the member on the floor was talking about it, I saw, I'm saying, so are you saying it's okay to um, divide congressional districts, you know, by race or I mean, wouldn't that be segregation? I mean, I'm, we're talking open here because I look at my district. I am represented – or I look at community of interest. I consider House District 5 my community of interest, and I've got six different ethnic groups. I've, I looked at it today on the new map, but I'm obviously Eastern state, so I've got a high Native American population. But white, non-Hispanic, black, African-American, American Indian, Alaska Native, uh, Asian, uh, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Hispanic. Those are – that's my ethnic groups that are inside District 5. And so we're all lumped there together just like I was raised. I mean, I was raised with the same, the same ethnic backgrounds. And we were, just, we were just, you know, rural Okies, Delaware County, Mays County people. And, and so we did not put an emphasis growing up on who was Indian, who was white, who was black, Mexican, whatever. And so it's uh, – so I don't get – I'm not understanding – I understand what the argument is, but I don't necessarily agree with that part. That Just because we've got a certain racial – uh, makeup or ethnicity and this thing we got a I mean I'm just like we got I'm a melting pot in district five and, and I like that just like Anthony was talking about and so what do you think Marlon well I would say I understand the concern from a community of interest and in this case we're talking about the Hispanic community in southwest OKC or south yeah, uh, yeah mainly southwest but south in general OKC um, you know I think the concern is that Yes, we're going to be represented by someone, and we're hopeful that that person will represent us and the specific things that affect our community in a way that may differently affect another community in Oklahoma City. Um, you know, we're hopeful that anyone who gets elected will care. You know, um, I think 
the reason why you could say that it matters is because a person who's elected to CD3, the majority of the people in CD3 that they will need to appeal to when they're running for office may put forth much different appeals based on the majority opinions of people in their district than somebody that um, might run to represent CD5 would. Um, because CD5, its, it's um, uh, percentages of the different you know, racial makeups that you discussed might end up looking a lot different than CD3 does. You know, it, it might even make sense for somebody who is Hispanic to run in CD3, and it could be successful in that endeavor. Would that make sense in CD5? I don't know. Um, but I think that's where the concern comes from, is will a person who has to appeal to people in Boys City also know how to appeal to me and also know how to properly represent me? And just for the record, the reason why we're commenting on Boise City is because during my debate today, I repeatedly referred to it as Boise City. Boise City. Uh, don't tell uh, friends from Boise City. Uh, Anthony, what do you think about that issue? Well, Marilyn made some great points, and that's why you know that's why this is so important. Because while I do see your point, and I may disagree. We, I want people to know that we have incredible relationship outside of here. Um, all of all of us, uh, and there's not one person on either side of the aisle that I don't feel like I can have a conversation with. Um, Representative Bennett today made some really good arguments for his uh, district, and like Representative West said, HD5 is his community of interest. HD57 is my community of interest, and I have very differing opinions based on how close I get to Oklahoma City. Calumet has very differing opinions on issues that they need versus what you have in Custer County. Uh, and, and now even more so, as I continue to move into Roger Mills County, one of the least populated uh, counties in Oklahoma, it's very different. And we happen to have the congressman from CD3 in my district now. And so it is uh, going to be interesting to, to see and hear what he thinks about it. I can't wait to have that conversation. No, and, and the representative the, that was on the floor in debate um, today when we were in special session, that's his job. Like he said, it's his job is to, is to do that, and that's all of our jobs. That's one. That's why we do this. That's what we talk about the issues and we don't agree on. But, you know, I pulled up his election. Well, I would spend more time in my in my district and use my influence to get people more involved. I mean, I looked up his 2000, when he came in here, 727 people elected him. Well, I would, that's a low number. I would go out there and say, hey, you need to get involved a lot more in the process. And, and he's not wrong. I mean, he made valid points for anybody can say anything, debate anything. That's his, he is representing the, the 38,700 constituents. But I would get people more involved in the process. Well, I think that's a big part of it, and that's each of our jobs in our district is to continue to get people involved. And I think people are more likely to be involved when they have someone they feel like will listen to them. And I think that's what Marilyn was saying. Is she's concerned about South Oklahoma City um, people feeling like, number one, they have someone that they can reach out to, someone that when they're running they care about their interests. And it is hard because that's one of the difficulties about Oklahoma when you have such – uh, sparse population and you cover such large mass uh, of area, <laughs> you know, it's difficult because I promise you what's needed in Altus isn't the same as Boise City. What's needed in Clinton isn't the same as either one. And so when you have large districts, it's going to be, uh, there are going to be larger variants between the different areas. Well, I talked about, I, I could go to my church uh, on Sunday after church and say, what do y'all want to eat? We cannot come to a consensus <laughs> as a church body where to eat. It's the same thing with the 101 uh, different members in the house. I mean, we're obviously, I, I didn't want to, with my district changes, I mean, I'm picking up, 
you know, a lot, most rural districts are big and not, not as big as the Panhandle districts, but mine's about 900 square miles. And so I'm looking at all the schools and I picked up some new schools. I guarantee I can go to every one of my superintendents and there's like 12 school districts now. I'm like, and they would not be on the same page either. And so it's, Hey, this is the process and this is the, you know, we're a representative form of government. And so this is the process we have to go through and, and it's good that we can go through this. It's, it's still good despite any issues we have in this country and this state that we have a process for this, that we still have a, yeah. a country intact and a state right. intact. Yeah. Well, well, you know, you bring up an interesting point as a rural quote unquote member that um, reminds me of a conversation I was having with a number of other members a couple of weeks ago about school districts and how I have one. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically, I have two because I think there are maybe Feeders. less than 100 kids that go to Noble who live in my district. Um, but for the most part, I deal with one superintendent, yeah. you know, and you deal with 12. So yeah. that balance that you have to have, even as a House member, I think, you know, having that perspective when we're talking about the congressional districts and how large they are. Some of our house districts are really large. Some of them are like mine, where it's one-third of one town. <laughs> We've, our smallest one's probably about four square miles, and it's all houses. There's no there's no schools. There's no businesses. Yeah. And so I was, I was like, man, that'd be pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> you can get on your bike. And Go on my, get on my bicycle. <laughs> if I were to get on my bike, first of all, I'd have a really hard time on, on the uh, county gravel roads. roads. <laughs> the gravel. But, you know, my, my new hey, district. My kind of kinsters are the best, if you're listening. You guys are great. My new district's 2,700 square miles. Wow. And, uh, and, I'm like and, three by three. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it definitely is. It's a big change. It's a difference. I lost three school systems and added eight. Ugh. And so I, I've added five, you know, eight new superintendents that I don't have relationships with that I've got to get to know quickly and figure out how I can help them. L- look at Paskowski's district. It's like 9,000 square miles. Wow. Well, and you look at um, Senator Murdoch's district. Yeah. I mean, he's darn close to, you know, 50% of the state. He drives three and a half hours area. to get here. Well, he's closer to Colorado there. and New yeah. Mexico state capital than is to Oklahoma. You know, I buy so, a T-shirt for every school in my district, uh, and that's like 12 T-shirts. So I can't imagine how many T-shirts you have at home. I don't have a large enough budget to get T-shirts for all. So uh, while we're talking about people getting involved in, in politics and the political process, um, this past week we have had individuals up here on behalf of Julius Jones, uh, as well as the Howell family and, and other groups. But um, as we speak right now, there uh, is a group out there advocating for clemency on behalf of, of Julius uh, Jones, and we wanted to talk about that today. Um, I'll just tell you my, my position, and then we'll pass it around. But um, I, I have always been opposed uh, morally to the death penalty. I've represented individuals on death row. Um, I served as the Oklahoma Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalties Chair for a while. Um, This is an issue that's always been um, uh, a passion point for me, Um, and I really do hope that uh, Governor Stitt is listening uh, and has heard uh, the voices and and that he follows the the clemency recommendation. So we'll see in that regard. But with that being said, Merlin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, first of all, I didn't know all those things about you. That's nice to... (laughs) come down here and learn those things about you in particular. And I, I feel the same way, largely. Um, I've, I've always had concerns about the death penalty and what that says about us as a state, that we would use that form of um, criminal justice, as it were, um, and administer that form. I think there are people within our criminal justice system, the people in McAllister who may tomorrow have to administer that death sentence that have, uh, you know, their own concerns about it, and they live it every day. Um, Having visited McAllister a couple of times, um, and the last time I went, I was actually able to meet Mr. Jones. Um, 
you know, my opinion about this individual case is that there is enough doubt um, that has been cast on his guilt for us to really take pause about it. Um, but in, in another sense, um, you know, guilt or innocence aside, I think seeing him in person and hearing um, the lessons that he has learned from his time incarcerated and how those lessons could be better applied to society if given the chance, um, you know, that that's really where I sit with with you know where we are in his case in particular I think that his life could be better used to serve the justice that we seek um that doesn't necessarily mean that he should be um you know let go by the state that's not the state's current recommendation from the pardon and parole board is that you know he be let go tomorrow um but I I I would very much look forward to seeing the kind of positive contributions that he could make in his life to our criminal justice system, to the lives of young people, which is one of the things that he talked about when I met with him, um, you know, wanting to, to help others avoid the situation that he currently finds himself in. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the best things that we can ask for when we're talking about the, um, the reform that's possible through our criminal justice system, the, the sort of um, um, not just punishment, but um, personal. Rehabilitation. Yes, rehabilitation. Yes, thank you. More? You know, this is a very obviously hot topic, um, and it's really been highlighted. There's a spotlight around the nation on it right now. Um, and I was kind of looking, I, you know, as an attorney, I, I wanted to know more about it and, and really dig in. I didn't, I'd never heard of Julius Jones before a year or two ago and, um, come to find out he's a relative of one of my, my one of my brothers from Clinton, uh, a man that I consider a brother, the only brother that I have. And, um, we've had lots of conversations about it. So it touches home to me and I, I've looked into it diligently, you know, uh, from 2001 to 13, 13 times the clemency uh, clemency was recommended by the Pardon Parole Board, and four times that was granted. Um, nine times it wasn't by three different governors. And uh, you lo- you look at that. This isn't a new th- new thing, um, but it sure feels like it is because of the maybe because well, we've been on a hiatus for a while. Well, I mean, and, and yeah. maybe social media too. You yeah. know, obviously 2013 was really kind of when it was ramping him to its height, and so because it wasn't uh, because we had that pause, and now we're back into it. Um, in fact. Uh, just before we started this um, podcast today, the clemency uh, clemency was recommended for the next inmate, three to two, be, not because of innocence or guilt, but because of concerns about whether it's safe or not. So it's it's definitely a, a tough uh, tough thing to talk about. I think something that all of us, and including, I'll, I'll tell you one thing I've been most proud of the Jones family in this, is continuing to mention the Howe family. Because a lot of people forget that there is another victim in this issue or a victim, uh, Mr. Howe. And, and so, you know, obviously our thoughts and prayers are with the Howe family. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure where the governor's going to fall on this, but it's not new, but it sure feels like it's a heightened level of awareness that we haven't seen before. And, and this isn't a, um, it's not necessarily a partisan issue. Obviously we have, um, Republican members as well yeah. that are, that are calling for this. Uh, and, and some of those, you know, that I've talked to, they don't necessarily think uh, he's innocent. They're just opposed 
to the death penalty. There's a, there's a lot of members too. Just I'm just opposed, and a lot of it's to do with fiscal reasons. Uh, you know, the the money that it costs uh, to execute someone because of the appeals process, um, it's it's more expensive actually to let you, or to uh, execute to execute you know somebody than is for life in prison. Um, so it's not necessarily a partisan issue. And I, you know, I I was not involved in. You know, I didn't know nothing about this trial until, like most of us, about the last two to three years, it became really heightened. And, and um, you know, just looking at the the information that was presented, talking to people that actually, you know, were part of the part of the um, prosecution, the prosecution, or that had an insight in this and that seen the, you know, all the information that was presented, all the evidence. Uh, you know, ninety nine percent of them say, "Hey, there's." There's no way the guy's innocent, and and I know that one of the main things they had was you know the defense uh, requested that a, a bandana be tested for uh, DNA. I believe it was I believe it was a bandana or something, something that was on somebody's head. I believe it was a bandana, and they requested that, that bandana be used as a test, um, you know, as part of the test. And they chose the lab. The defense counsel did, and you know it came back with. As far as DNA, I believe within, you know, the African-American community was a 1 in 110 million chance that this was not Mr. Jones. And if you look at the overall population, it was a 1 in 1.3 billion chance that this was not the individual that committed the crime. And so, um, you know, it's easy to armchair quarterback it. Obviously, I can have empathy for the Jones family. Um, just like I do for the the family of the victim, it's not, um, you know, people often when you get in these high profile things and it's toxic and we got it's on social media and we have groups up here. It's easy to um, whether you agree or disagree that Mr. Jones committed this crime, it's easy to look at his family and say, oh, they're bad, too. No, they're, they're a mother and a father or whatever the case, siblings. They have they're worried about their kid. And so I can have empathy for the family, um, as well as obviously the victim. And it was a heinous crime. I mean, the guy was shot in the head in front of his children. And so, uh, it's a bad deal. And, you know, without being in the courtroom, am I going to say, you know, can I say he's innocent or guilty? Just the people that I've talked to that have been highly involved in this case. So there's, there's no way the guy's innocent. Well, and, and part of the reason why it's, it's not a partisan issue is because faith, I think, or, or your own personal morality, plays a role into this situation. Uh, and I've, I've talked about this before, Justice Scalia, who is a devout Catholic, and many Catholics, as you know, are pro-life and anti-death penalty. They're, they're consistent across the board because a life is a life is a life. But Justice Scalia once said that so long as due process was followed, it would be perfectly constitutional and legal to execute an in- innocent individual, um, which was shocking to me coming from you know a devout Catholic like Justice Scalia was. Um, but you know I think all of us wait... Uh, the law, morality, facts, we all weigh those sorts of things differently. Um, I would just hope and believe that we have reached a stage in our um, maturation as a society and culture to realize that we actually have alternative avenues other than putting people to death. One of the individuals that I had the chance to represent who was on death row was a fantastic artist, and he had a horrible upbringing. Uh, He was literally locked in a cage outside for months on end during the winter and during the summer months and those sorts of things. Um, And so there's a lot uh, that goes into these issues, Um, and that's why it's hard for me. It's like if there were a cop that had somebody arrested and had their hands, you know, had them secured where they couldn't do anything, and the cop went ahead and continued to pummel them, we would all say that's not right. Uh, why? Because the person is secure. 
they're not a, a threat of harm. And I feel the same way about individuals that are incarcerated. So I do truly hope that uh, Governor Stitt follows the, the clemency recommendation. So I have no doubt in the 245 years that we've been a country, we have executed people that, that did not commit the crime. Do you think as attorneys who've obviously have, uh, and, and you have represented death row inmates, like you said, you've been around these cases. Do you think that, especially over the last, let's just, let's just not even say 30 years, let's say 20 years, the science that we have available to us, uh, it obviously has proven some people's innocence. It's also proven a lot more, you know, those ones that are guilty, it's been able to put a more reinforce that these people are good. That's the science available. So do you think that science, today's science has the, you know, the range to screw up that bad right now? Not that there can't be mistakes, Matt, but do you think with today's science that we're going to be, I think my personal opinion is it has helped the criminal justice system with, you know, putting the, putting bad people that, you know, the people that actually commit the crimes in prison and well, proving I think, that. I think science has done a, a great job of really playing the role of uh, clarification or clarifier in the courtrooms. You know, as a former prosecutor, um, I was involved in several just terrible cases. Um, you know, I, I have relationships to two cases that, that are in the top 10 on death row right now. Uh, one uh, was a Washtenaw County case uh, that happened prior to me uh, being the assistant DA in Washtenaw County, but then we had to deal with, as you talked about, two appeals um, that we, we dealt with. And then um, my youth minister's wife's brother was uh, violently murdered, and, and his um, his killer is, uh, I think, number six or seven on death row at this time. So, you know, I've had very close relationships with that. But uh, so, yes, I think science helps us ensure accuracy, and that's that's vital. I mean, one of the legal questions you hear in law school is, is it better to um, kill one, you know, which is worse, killing one innocent person or setting 100 guilty free? And that's what a moral question. And I think to Colin's point, something that really this whole thing has made me consider is I think growing up I was always, uh, yes, I'm pro-death penalty, and really left it at that, never thought about it because I don't know if it's just because of where I was raised or, or, or what, but... It makes you think, and I, regardless of whether you change your opinion, it's always good to stop and think deeply about these issues and and listen to people who disagree or maybe come from a different viewpoint than where you thought you were because, and again, going back to the whole reason for this podcast is we can have these conversations and maybe we don't flip sides, but maybe we both move an inch and that's what the world is lacking today is the ability to have a conversation and concede, you know what, I, I don't fully agree with you, but I can understand where you're coming from and I'm going to move a little bit closer. Uh, it's a lost art, and that's something that I feel sets Oklahomans apart. And and I know some people would disagree with that, um, and especially, gosh, on Twitter, you know, and social media yeah. where people, you know, throw hate. I was I've, I've been called a monster in the last few months because of a power of attorney bill that obviously oh, yeah, is yeah, not yeah. not intended. You know, some unintended consequences we're going to fix, but just automatically assuming by the letter next to someone's name that they're this or they're that. That's not what this is about. That's not what Oklahomans are about. And and we should lead the way. You know, we talk about the Oklahoma standard. This is somewhere that we should lead the way. So to your point, Josh, you know, yes, science uh, certainly has helped the, the, the doubt side of this, right? So even looking at this, taking out my moral objections to it, and I, and I can't believe I'm blanking on her name. 
but uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a uh, scientist here in Oklahoma City with the OKCPD, and I forget her name, but she ended up actually um, botching and just completely falsifying a lot of this uh, science-based evidence, DNA evidence, those sorts of things. I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. Isn't that a crime, though? Wouldn't that be? Well, no, it is, but that's the point is, is that if you get convicted based off of her testimony, right, now that's why those appeal processes sit there. Is is because of that. So it is foolproof to some greater or lesser degree. Why is the appeal process so expensive? Well, because you have not just uh, state appellate rights, but you have federal appellate rights, habeas corpus rights, those sorts of things, to ensure that we aren't convicting and putting to death innocent people. And I, so I'm I, I'm pro death penalty, but I want to make sure that there's you know that we're executing. You know, people that, that are not innocent. I know if, if, like I said, if you look at the DNA, I don't know if the one in 110 million is, you know, does that give reason to, is that one? Does that say, well, that's justifiable to say that there's, there, there's going to be doubt in there. I, I don't think so. But like I said, it's a tough topic and I would not want to be, have to make that decision personally. Um, well, and it's beyond, it's not beyond all doubt. It's not beyond any doubt. Right, it's beyond reasonable. A reasonable doubt. And that's something that's really. That's very Scalia-esque of you though. <laughs> Boy, that's the best compliment you can give any any attorney. Um, um, but you know, you think about it, and it, and it is something that we have to consider. And I I think really what this comes down to is not. And I was really proud of what Merlin said that it's not an innocence. You know, there you see things that it's you know it's like free Julius Jones. That's that's not what any of us are talking about. It's a it's a matter of is this the right plan to to execute someone and. Uh, can life without the possibility of parole accomplish the same thing? Can life, even with the possibility of parole, um, what does that do? And so um, there are a lot of factors to weigh And obviously there, we and have no say. Heavy. This is not a bill that's ran. These are, these are opinions. These are just conversations we're having. I mean, this is not up to us in any way. We have no say in this. Um, and so it's, it would, it's a tough topic. And, I, you know, I want to – Hey, if you kill somebody in this way, I have no problems. I mean, maybe it's, I don't know, from my military ways or what, or rural ways, but – uh, I don't have a problem putting to death somebody that does, you know, they're going to have ample opportunity to get right with, with God or whoever they need to get with. And um, that's my personal opinion, though. Yeah. Well, Merlin, you want to say anything in closing? Oh, God, no pressure. Hey, this, um, before, that, before we close, let's do just yeah. a quick little thing on the vaccine. So obviously we, I talked about it oh, yeah. on a radio um, last week. But so the state of Oklahoma filed um, four lawsuits, and one was to deal with contract employees. You know, private employees, uh, over a hundred uh, personnel. One was the National Guard, and one was the CMS mandates that are you know for nursing homes, mental health facilities, hospitals. And so, I, the, the, there was one that had a stay put on it that dealt with the private side, with the the private businesses over a hundred people. Uh, that was essentially, if you don't know, stays a hold. And so they extended that, I do believe, and I believe that came out today that OSHA came out and said that we're not going to enforce it based off this. Uh, the circuit judge's opinion that we're not going to enforce this at this time. And so I would assume that the CMS lawsuit that was filed this officially filed Monday, we'll have the, we'll probably have the same results. We don't know. I mean, Colin probably has a different opinion on the, um, you know, he mentioned last time that he didn't know if it was constitutional, you know, as far as the way they went about doing it, he believed they, they should as, as his personal feelings, they believe should, but he didn't know if it was constitutional, but he did talk about as far as the, the funding, the he CMS side of it. That may yeah. possibly be. 
Yeah, because OSHA, I think the way that, that the Biden administration, while I, again, I agree, everybody ought to be vaccinated, et cetera, but uh, setting that aside legally, and I look at this as a lawyer and I told all my constituents, I won't vote for an unconstitutional bill. And so if I were sitting there in Congress, which that's the reason why I, I think this is unconstitutional is because Biden didn't go through Congress. He was trying to go through an administrative action. But and I don't do think you do agree that. that the government should tell you that you're that you're going you have to do it or we're going to withhold funding or that we're going to set up uh it's going to cost your business a lot of money because we're going to require you to get tested your employees get tested every so often do you believe in that point because i think whether you're pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine or somewhere in between most people don't appreciate that they are holding so i'm pushing people in the corner and say you do this or else so i'm going to divide that in two ways so the first way i'm going to divide it is is directly and explicitly telling businesses to do something I, i i do have an issue with that um, but I, I, I think, okay, fine. If you want to pass laws that say you've got to have your vaccine card in order to go into you know, a public venue, I'm fine with that. Right. So, the so government or a private government, business saying that this is going to be part of our policy. Both, both, both. I'm fine well, with both of those. Why are you, why are you good with the government mandating that? I mean, why, why do you think the government should say, if you want to go into a grocery store, you have to have a vaccine card. Right. Yeah, well, the reason I am is because, uh, again, I believe wholeheartedly in vaccines um, and, you know, thank God they were here and got rid of polio, et cetera, right? So I'm all for them. I got them as a kid, go to school, those sorts of things. Why? Because we don't want to have an outbreak of smallpox. So that's why, because it's for the greater good. Um, and, and I think our founding fathers were uh, testaments to looking and thinking about the greater good. I will also say, though, on the CMS side about withholding funding, yes, I think that's perfectly appropriate. And if it was a Republican governor, I'd say it's perfect. I mean, a Republican president, I'd say it's perfectly appropriate. I may not like it. Right. Uh, but that's the reality. If you want money from somebody, sometimes you get, it comes with strings attached. Well, let's say you were the president and you wanted everybody in the United States to get vaccinated. Let's say you were the governor of Oklahoma. You want everybody in Oklahoma to get vaccinated. Do you think you'd have a better response if you said you're getting it? No ifs, ands, or buts. You're going to get this. Or if you leave it up to the individual to go to have conversations with their doctor or whoever they need to have talk to and let them present them as a, a medical expert, but that's, that's, but, but that's your problem. I think that's the problem is that we say, because he's my primary care physician or she's my doctor or whatever, that they're thereby an expert and they're not necessarily an expert in virology and necessarily an expert in epidemiology, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, and so expertise is important, but it's expertise in the right area. That's important. Well, I think that this touches on several different issues, and I really want Merlin's opinion, so I'm not going to try to talk too long here. But, you know, I'm I'm pro-vaccine. I got my vaccine. I'm also very pro-freedom, and I have a really hard hard time (laughs) telling someone, you've got to get a vaccine. I have a really hard time telling an owner of a grocery store, you have to require people to show their vaccine card if you don't. If you, you don't believe in that, if you don't feel like that's the right thing, because while I do think people that can and safely get vaccinated should, boy, when's the next thing? Because if I become president, am I, is it okay for me to say, okay, everyone's going to go to this church? Well, that's why, you, that, that's why I think it's up to the legislature. I mean, as, as a president I would, or a governor, I would go to the legislature. And they say, will never put that before a vote because I'm going to tell you what, the, the blue dogs in Congress are really worried right now. They just are. I've heard the comments. Oh, I, I, I mean, I agree. I think it's hurt. That Democrats would not pass. It wouldn't be close unless you're from a really progressive state and just feel safe. But most people, they're getting hammered. It's, it's, it's not a partisan issue. I've got just as many D's and I's and L's as R's that say, I don't want the government saying you do this or else. Let me make that decision myself. And I, some people don't want to fill out an exemption. They're just like, I, you know, I've got family that's one of them. You know, one of so Jesus didn't tell me not to get it. I don't have a religious exemption. I have no medical exemption. I don't want to get it because I'm going to assume the liability associated with not getting it. And 
You know, that's that's my decision, though, and it's not the government's. And so it's it's probably it's we're not going to all agree on this, and yeah. it's a no win situation. And you know, we're kind of pounding our heads in the sand. And but uh, it's think, it's important to talk about it. Oh, gosh, I could talk about this all day. Um, you know, I had a group of people uh, on Monday come and visit the office. There were about 15 strong people that came from Norman uh, to talk about their opposition to vaccine mandates and share stories with me about their employers, you know, that they've been with for 20, 30, 40 years, now telling them that they have to do these things. And I really feel for them. I do. And I empathize with them because I believe in personal freedom too, you know. But, but I think what the vaccine mandate and what COVID has really um, brought forward is this fundamental idea about what the government should tell us to do and what it shouldn't. It's as if a lot of people that I've talked to forget that the government tells you what to do all the time. You know, if you take in the context of workplace safety, is it a workplace safety issue for you to come to work knowing that you may potentially be able to get a virus or shed a virus with other people and honestly in a fiscal way because i love thinking about things in a fiscal way does that affect your company's bottom line and is that responsible for you to to choose your personal freedom over your employer's uh you know bottom line i think about employee employer relationships a lot as relationships you know like there it's like well Yes, you may work for um, Amazon or Boeing or, you know, another large company with over 100 employees, but are you entitled to work there? Or are you signing a contractual relationship with that person? Are you agreeing to terms just the way that you would agree to terms with your wife about what your relationship is going to be and what the um, deal breakers are and what what they aren't? I mean, I, it, I think it would be great if we were in a place where we didn't feel like we needed to get involved as a state or federally or in some other policy-driven way because people were having those uh, conversations with their employers or with their school districts or with you know whoever more frequently so that they stay on the same page and they stay in those um, you know on good terms within those relationships but then something like COVID happens and it really provides this, you know, sort of black and white litmus test about where people are. And then we throw the idea out the window that, well, yeah, I mean, I, I adhere to workforce regulations about this. You know, there are state and safety issues. There are all these other issues. I sacrifice my personal freedom for the things that I get from my job. Um, from my employment or from a relationship or whatever. Um, so it, it, it's, it's very hard for me to say, to, excuse me, uh, to somebody else, uh, you know, who comes to my office that I don't value personal freedom because I do. But I think that we, we balance those personal freedoms with public responsibilities all the time. And this is just another way that we have to do that. I'm glad that we're So if you had a chance to vote on a bill in Oklahoma, would you vote to make every, every Oklahoman take the vaccine? I would not. Well, that's what, but you're saying it's good for the federal government to do it because it takes the pressure off of us. No, no, no. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it, the, it's good for the federal government to do it. I'm saying that because there's this, this idea of personal freedom mm-hmm. and personal responsibility that when the personal responsibility is not taken um, or, or, or when that, 
that lean towards personal responsibility means we still have very serious critical workforce or um, educational or um, you know healthcare. even healthcare centered um, problems that need to be addressed. This this pandemic needs to and has to end. Right. I don't think it's going to end. I think that it's an animal vector for one. So with both right. of those, that it's never going to go away. We've got to figure out ways to, to mitigate right. it the best we can. I think in 20 years, we're still going to have COVID-19, which is hopefully by then, the, as with most animal vectors, talking to my doctor, I'm obviously not a doctor, but he said that the animal vectors, the more it mutates and transfers, it may be more transmittable, but oftentimes it gets less uh, harsh or severe. And so big topic. Uh, we could stay here for a long time. We've, we've, we've Probably this might be the longest podcast we've ever done. So. Uh, I don't know. Oh. That's what oh. happens when you get an extra lawyer on there. Right. Yeah, no kidding, man. <laughs> well, Obviously, people right. think that we're full of lawyers up here. We have very few attorneys I think up there's here. There's nine yeah. total in the house. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. So it's it's mostly just your average. Every, I mean, any any um, profession you can think of, we've probably got somebody up here that, out of the 101 members and the 48 in the Senate that have worked in that field. And so that's a good thing. We have lots of people that know subject matter experts, if you will. Absolutely. So. Representative Moore, Representative Bell, thank you both for being here. Truly appreciate it. Thank you. This is fun. As always, we uh, appreciate y'all listening, and we appreciate the ability to serve our districts. Um, I mean, we're we're not all the same, and that's a good thing, and this is a people's house. Come up here and and see us. I mean, come and exercise your rights as Oklahomans, and if you've never been here, it's a beautiful building, and I'm proud to work here every day. Talked about it yesterday. It was the anniversary of our – swearing in it was our this is we started our sixth year calling they we started our sixth year and so i still pull out of my apartment i think man it's i get to go work at the, at the people's house so yeah. still love the job and never check, gets old love the district check us out www.okhouse.gov go to the media link underneath that that's the podcast and then uh, also we're available on spotify up to two trillion listens a day thank you absolutely